Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for the Therapeutic Thursdays podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. My name is Lindsay Childs-Keen, a clinical assistant professor from the University of Florida College of Pharmacy and an infectious disease pharmacist with UF Health. With me today is Whitney Buckle, the System Antimicrobial Stewardship Pharmacist Manager and PGY2 Infectious Diseases Residency Program Director at Intermountain Healthcare. Whitney also serves as the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists Representative on ASHP's Section of Clinical Specialists and Scientists Meeting Planning Educational Steering Committee. Well, that was a mouthful. Thanks for joining us today, Whitney. Thanks so much, Lindsay. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's get started talking about today's topic, the recent measles outbreaks that were in the news in 2019. We'll also touch on the topics of vaccine hesitancy and the role that a pharmacist can play when it comes to vaccine hesitancy. So let's start by talking about those measles outbreaks in 2019. Um, And really the starting place is that in about 2000, measles was pretty much eliminated from our entire planet. But 2019 was a record-breaking year for outbreaks in the United States and globally. So as of November 5th, 2019, the World Health Organization reported more than 400,000 cases of measles worldwide, with the largest numbers having occurred in the Democratic Republic of Congo, which accounted for about 250,000 suspected cases and over 5,000 deaths. Staying on the African continent, there were still outbreaks ongoing in late 2019 in both Madagascar and Nigeria. Jumping over to areas of South America, Southeast Asia, and the Pacific Islands, there were also issues. In particular, in December, Samoa's government extended a state of emergency related to its measles outbreak with over 5,000 cases and 73 deaths. And in Europe, the WHO also saw a sharp increase in measles cases in 2019, with most of those cases occurring in the Ukraine. And other countries in Europe seeing outbreaks were Kazakhstan, Georgia, the Russian Federation, and Turkey. It's also interesting to note that in 2018, Great Britain lost its measles elimination status. So obviously, this is a global problem. Here in the United States, the CDC reported that there were 1,282 cases of measles in 2019 in 31 states. Washington, California, and New York have been most significantly impacted by the recent measles outbreaks. In New York in particular, they saw about 1,000 measles cases primarily within an Orthodox Jewish community where the patient zero was found to be a 14-year-old boy from Israel obviously another country that was suffering from a large measles outbreak. So clearly this is not an issue in the United States, but a worldwide outbreak all over the globe. So with increasing global travel, we need a global response to try and prevent diseases and measles-related deaths. So let me take a step back. Um, Whitney, tell me a little bit about what measles is, how is it transmitted, what do we need to know about the virus itself? Yes, Lindsay, great question. So uh, measles is a virus, it's a viral infection, and it is one of the viruses that's actually easily prevented by a vaccine. In those patients that do get, um, contract the virus, they 
probably are exposed 10 to 14 days before they have symptoms. And they have common viral symptoms in terms of a cough, runny nose, inflamed eyes, sore throat, fever, and then develop the characteristic rash that people think of when they think of the measles infection. I think something really important to know about it is that this virus is really contagious. It is so contagious that 90% of those unvaccinated who are close to an infected individual will become infected. And it's spread via coughing or sneezing. But what's really unique about it is that it could stay in the airspace for two hours after somebody coughs or sneezes. So you don't have to shake hands or share the same drink to be able to catch measles. You could just be, you know, going through the same buffet line and happen to get it. Um, and I think that's particularly true when you look at situations of outbreaks. They've even, um, you know, one of the ones that's most memorable to me is the one in Indiana in early 2000s where somebody returned from a uh, endemic country and went to a, a big buffet. Um, and there were 500 people there uh, at a church gathering. And of those who were not immune to to measles, there were 35 members who had not been vaccinated. 31 of those 35 members, or 90%, um, were the ones that were infected, in addition to a few others who had received the vaccine. So that gives you a little bit about the rash and the typical presentation. I think one of the concerns with measles is not the typical presentation with the viral syndrome and the rash, but the complications that are really concerning for measles. Lindsay, can you share with us a little bit of those concerning complications and, and why we really care about eliminating this disease. Absolutely, Whitney. So as you described the classic symptoms of measles, that those really occur in that acute infection stage. Complications will happen after that acute phase sort of starts to wane. And those individuals who are at highest risk for complications are children under the age of five and adults over the age of 20, including pregnant women and individuals that have some form of immunocompromise. And so when we talk about common complications, we're thinking of ear infections, which could potentially result in permanent hearing loss and diarrhea. More severe complications can include pneumonia and encephalitis. In the United States outbreaks that happened in 2019, about 10% of patients with measles had to be hospitalized, and about 5% of them had those serious complications like pneumonia and encephalitis. And in fact, the overall estimated rate of brain damage or death from measles is two to three out of a thousand cases. So that sounds like a small number, but it is a pretty significant number. What I didn't, I either didn't know or I forgot from learning about measles when I was in pharmacy school is maybe a complication that's even scarier than these complications I've already described. And that's the ability for the measles virus to basically reset the patient's immune system. And it does this during that acute infection phase by replacing the host memory cells with measles virus specific lymphocytes. So what this means is that the patient will end up having immunity to measles, but will be more susceptible to infections by other organisms. And this sort of immune amnesia can last two to three years after the measles infection. And before we had a, an effective measles vaccine, there are estimates that about 50% of 
all infectious diseases in children after they had a measles infection was caused by this immune amnesia. Um, and so this is kind of scary um, that just getting past the initial acute infection isn't all that there is with a measles infection and that the results of an infection with measles can last for a couple of years potentially. So with all this talk of scary complications, let's talk about how we prevent an infection with measles. We've alluded to prevention through vaccination. So Whitney, tell us a little bit more about the measles vaccine. Yes, thanks, Lindsay. The best prevention for measles is vaccination. So let me give you a little bit of a historical perspective. Uh, the first two measles vaccines became available in 1963. There was an inactivated vaccine as well as a live attenuated vaccine. Attenuated meaning a little um, not so severe that it would cause a full-blown infection, but enough to elicit an immune response. And what they found is that although the inactivated by a vaccine um, seemed like it would be effective, the immunity tended to wane after about six months. And that vaccine is no longer used. And that's why we use a live vaccine today. And we usually use it in MMR, a combination vaccine where measles is combined with mumps and rubella. So this vaccine that we have now and that we recommend, it's a two-dose series. The first dose is given between the ages of 12 and 15 months. And the second dose is given between ages four and six. The reason that we have the second dose is because there was a 1989 measles outbreak among vaccinated school-age children. And this is what um, led them to ha recommending that second vaccine right before kids start school, right about that time of kindergarten. One dose is effective about 93% of the time, and this increases to 97% with two doses. So, this difference between 93 and 97% is actually important, and it's related to the concept of herd immunity, um, which I sort of joke, like, do we sound like cattle? Is this really <laughs> the best term to use? Um, I think another term for it is community protection. So, Lindsay, would you share with us a little bit more about this herd immunity or community protection and why that second dose is so important with measles? Yeah, absolutely. So herd immunity, and again, I, I like your joke, are we, are we cattle? So we'll, we'll stick with community protection. Um, it's basically protection of the community because of the individual protection of a significant portion of the community's members. Said another way, if a sufficient portion of the susceptible persons are vaccinated, then new infections would decrease or even be eliminated because there wouldn't be a sufficient number of susceptible hosts remaining. And as you alluded earlier, measles is one of the most infectious agents we have that infects humans. So for measles, the vaccination rate that we need for this community protection is about 95%. And so that's a really high vaccination rate because we have certain individuals who cannot get the MMR vaccine because it is a live vaccine. And that tends to be our, our patients who are immunocompromised because they don't have the immune response to be able to fight off even that small portion of a live vaccine. So 
back to sort of the definition of community protection, what you're really doing when you get a vaccine or you have your child get a vaccine, you're not only protecting yourself against the infection, you're also protecting those around you, especially those who can't receive the vaccine themselves. So given this idea that we're protecting not only ourselves, but also others who can't get the vaccine, there's this concept of vaccine hesitancy. So Whitney, tell us a little bit about vaccine hesitancy and why people may be hesitant to get vaccines. Yes. Thanks, Lucy. Yes, 95%, when you think about it, is a really high vaccination rate. And and if you have some people that are hesitant, that's more than a couple percent of the population because of those that are immunocompromised can't receive the vaccine, then then that can be a problem for eliminating measles from the globe. So I think that it's important to understand that, you know, these are choices that parents are making for their children since children are being vaccinated about at the age of a year and five years. And really, I think it comes down to the fact that parents want to do the best thing for their their, their children, right? Uh, they care a lot about their children. They want to protect them. And I think there's sometimes vaccine hesitancy when there's uncertainty about what is the best thing to do. And I think some of that uncertainty has happened um, because of social media or, or meeting with, you know, some peers or, or getting information from a variety of sources. And some of the misconceptions about vaccines or the concerns that people have um, are related to, you know, are we overloading the immune system with multiple infectious diseases? And, you know, what about the ingredients that are being used in vaccines? Are, are all of the ingredients, you know, safe and accounted for? I think there's concern by parents about the adverse effects or potential adverse effects with vaccines. They don't want to see um, their child cry when they get a vaccine or, you know, have a fever after a vaccine and then other adverse effects as well. And I also think that there's some vaccine hesitancy because, um, you know, we're not seeing all the cases of measles that we did before, because prior to the 1960s, when we had vaccine in the United States, there were four to 500 deaths a year, and we don't see that volume of deaths. So, so the, the reverse fear of getting the infection, you know, may not be there as, as well. So I think that's, um, you know, going over some of the concerns that parents have when they're trying to um, make this decision about vaccinating their, their children. So um, one of the ways that we can really listen to, you know, one of the things is to listen and to understand where parents are coming from and having really honest conversations about the risks and benefits of vaccines. So before we get into how we might answer some of those questions, maybe we'll transition into the role of the pharmacist. And I, and I think you'll agree with me that um, one of the roles of the pharmacist is, is education, um, but there's more to it than just that. So let me turn it over to you. Absolutely. Thank you, Whitney. So one of the roles of the pharmacist that has advanced just within the last decade is for pharmacists to be able to provide immunizations in the community and ambulatory care setting in every U.S. state. So pharmacists were already the most accessible healthcare provider. So this makes sense for pharmacists to be in a great position to provide those immunizations as well as to provide education and to talk to patients about the role of vaccination for both themselves and their children. 
So in addition to administering vaccines, you started talking about education. And I think we also need to think about using motivational interviewing when we talk to patients about what the recommendations are for vaccination and why a patient might be hesitant to get vaccinated or have their child get vaccinated. So the WHO lays out common misconceptions about vaccinations, which might be helpful to discuss with patients. And you mentioned some of these already, that some of the misconceptions the WHO lays out is that natural infections safely provide better immunity than vaccines, that maybe giving a vaccine giving a child multiple vaccines at the same time can overload the immune system or that ingredients in vaccines are dangerous. And so going through these different misconceptions is discussed in detail in a recent article in the Journal of Pharmacy Practice by Lizenby. And we'll make sure and have a link to that in the show notes for this podcast episode for everyone to read through. But I personally had to use some of these suggestions actually before they were published um, because I was contacted a, a year or two ago by a former student who was about to bring her infant in for her regularly scheduled two-month vaccines. She knew I was a relatively new mom and an infectious disease pharmacist, so she trusted my advice. Um, and one thing to think about is that this individual is highly educated. She's a trained pharmacist, but she had some concerns. Like you mentioned, we want to do the best thing we can for our children. And so I had a, a conversation with her. What are her specific concerns related to giving vaccines to her child? And so knowing those specific concerns allowed me to point her in the direction of reliable information as well as giving her some reassurance that significant adverse events from vaccines are extremely rare. In fact, in the excellent book called Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's Autism, significant adverse events are estimated at one in a million vaccinations. And so that is a teeny tiny number. It's not zero, but it's teeny tiny. And so fortunately, that was able to reassure her that it's best to go ahead and vaccinate her child. So what else have you run across, Whitney, in your practice that we can convey to our patients um, to try to get them to vaccinate themselves as well as vaccinate their children? Right, Lindsay. I mean, everything that you said really strikes a bell with me. I think the motivational interviewing, and I really do think listening to concerns and understanding that they come from a place of of good, right? Trying to do the best thing for, for your children um, is really important. I think we also need to recognize that a lot of this is fear-driven. And one thing that we can do is show confidence and, and make people feel empowered that they can make this, this, cho this choice to vaccinate their children and do good by vaccination. And, and I know, I mean, I'm an infectious disease pharmacist as well, and, and I'm sure you have seen um, vaccine-preventable illnesses in some of your patients. And I, for one, uh, feel really thankful that I live in this era where we aren't losing lots of children to these preventable diseases. So I am lucky. I feel lucky that we're able, um, I'm able to vaccinate my children. And I think um, one of the things we can do and what I like about your story is that, you know, sometimes it takes that personal trust and somebody that you, you um, really trust their opinion to be able to help. So I think 
we we as pharmacists and being a resource in the community are are that perfect resource to really promote vaccines. And we can also engage other thought leaders as well. Like if we know um, the well-respected chiropractor in the community or a religious leader or the social media influencer, and we can get them on board. Uh, I think that we can do that as well by just spreading um, individual, you know, having one-on-one conversations with other influencers. And one of the articles I really liked is by Dr. Oler in uh, CID recently in 2020. And we'll include that in the, the show notes as well. But I think that he also lays out some ideas of things that we can do as a medical community that are really interesting. Um, I think we can promote celebrity providers and we can really develop social media influencers and practice um, spreading positive news via social media as well. I think we can make sure we're available for questions, which I think pharmacists do a great job um, already. And then when we have those conversations, make sure that we touch base and we find the common ground uh, in saying that we are on the same side, trying to achieve the same goal, and we're providing information to help get to the same ultimate endpoint of health of children. What other things do you have uh, to add? Does that resonate with you as well about what pharmacists can do? Absolutely. And I think one other thing to keep in mind is that might not be a one-time conversation. You might have to have multiple conversations with a patient, especially if they, if their reservations are really strongly held. Um, some individuals' reservations and hesitancy to receiving vaccines are related to not trusting authority figures, in which case you might be one of those authority figures. And so working through that, through your own relationship with that patient, having the multiple conversations, demonstrating that you are trustworthy in other areas, maybe then they can begin to trust what you're recommending to them. But again, but really it might not be just one conversation. It might have to be an ongoing conversation um, in order to convince some individuals. Right. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's a a perfect pearl. And I think related to that, maybe having the mindset that it'll take multiple conversations, you know, that that first conversation, it's really important to just listen uh, and really listen for what their values are and their interests are and, and, you know, validate, um, that they're coming from a good place and not maybe make it so corrective, you know, in that initial thing. And, and that relationship is probably really important, right? And you can establish that relationship over multiple conversations and not feel like you've failed if it just didn't happen after one. Um, I think that's a really good piece of advice. All right. Well, we have laid out um, some of the statistics for the recent measles outbreaks in 2019 and some of the information about the complications of measles and the vaccination that we that we have for measles and then a little bit about vaccine hesitancy and what pharmacists might be able to do to overcome some of that vaccine hesitancy with patients. So that's really about all the time we have today. Thank you so much Whitney Buckle for joining us today to discuss the recent measles outbreaks and vaccine hesitancy. Thanks so much for having me, Lindsay. Join us here every Thursday where we will talk with ASHP member content matter experts on a variety of clinical topics. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. 
be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.